This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Stephanie Strappy. People call me Steph. I'm the Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences at the University of California, San Diego, and I now co-direct the new Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, known as IPATH. That's the first phage therapy center in North America. But that's the end of the story. You want to hear how I got there, right? Well, it's a crazy story. People often don't even believe that it, it's true. Um, but it really is. Um, my husband and I went on vacation in Egypt in the fall of, of 2015. And um, we're scientists. We travel together. And we always you know, do off the beaten path kinds of things. We had a dream of, you know, going to see King Tut's tomb, and we floated down the Nile River in a wonderful ship. So everything went great until the night before we were supposed to see King Tut's tomb, and Tom and I had this wonderful meal on top of a cruise ship, and he, um, and he got violently ill afterwards. I mean, he was throwing up all over the place. And, you know, I just thought he had a bad muscle or something like that. But actually, he got very sick. We had to call a doctor to the ship. The doctor said he's going into shock. Um, there was no hospital in Luxor where the ship was docked. So we ended up having to go to a community clinic. There they diagnosed him with pancreatitis, which is essentially an inflammation of the pancreas. But when I called back home to our colleagues who are leading the Department of Infectious Diseases at UC San Diego, they said, hey, that's just a symptom of something else because, you know, you're the, the wine drinker in the family. Uh, Tom doesn't drink nearly as much as you. And, and that's usually one of the, the causes of pancreatitis. They said something else is going on. And luckily, we had travel insurance, so we were able to get him medevaced um, to Frankfurt, Germany, because he was too sick to be medevaced home. And there, they did a CT scan and saw that he had a giant abscess in his abdomen the size of a football. And the doctors came to me and said, you know, there's something lurking inside this abscess. And they showed me this putrid flask of, of uh, fluid that they'd taken from this abscess and they said something's growing in there and we have had to culture it it's going to take a couple of days but let's hope it's a garden variety microorganism because there's a lot of multi-drug resistant bacteria in Egypt well I was getting a little bit worried but you know I thought hey we have antibiotics anything you know that's growing in there we can handle it well the doctors came back in a couple of days and they showed me that this name of this organism was Acinetobacter bomanii. And it, it's something that I used to plate on my Petri dishes back in the 1980s when I was taking a rusty old degree in microbiology at the University of Toronto. And again, I really wasn't that worried, but they said, look, this is actually the worst bacteria on the planet. I thought, you know, what? How can this be the worst bacteria on the planet? Because like, you know, 20 years ago, we just had to use like goggles and a lab coat and, and that was it. It was not worrisome at all. Well, it turns out that the antimicrobial resistance crisis had crept up on us. And Tom was essentially the poster child for this post-antibiotic era that we, we've entered now. And so the doctors did what's called an antibiogram to find out the antibiotics that could be used to hopefully treat this thing. And they came back and they were even more alarmed because there was only a couple of antibiotics that it was partially sensitive to and it was resistant to 15 right off the top. Well, I started to get worried now. And um, this was right before Christmas of 2015. Luckily, they stabilized him, got him sent back to San Diego where my colleagues in the Department of Medicine were 
looking after him and I thought, okay, we're fine. We're home now, right? Everything's going to be fine. We'll find some antibiotics to, you know, to cocktail together to cure this thing. And they repeated the culture and they found out that now, and even though only a few weeks had passed, this organism was resistant to all antibiotics. I mean, even the last resort antibiotic, Callistin, that was developed in World War II, well, um, they said, you know, he's too weak for surgery. We have no choice but to um, use interventional radiology to essentially stick, you know, holes in his abdomen and put these catheters in there to try to drain out this infected fluid out of the abscess and hopefully it would shrink and then he'd be better, right? Well, not so fast because uh, even though he had started to improve, one day he sat up in bed and this um, tube inside his abdomen slipped and it, it just dumped all that infected fluid into his abdomen, into his bloodstream. And immediately he went into septic shock right in front of my eyes. And I'm, I'm telling you, it was one of the scariest moments of my life. We were actually supposed to get discharged to an acute care facility the next day, but that wasn't happening anytime fast. In fact, he was rushed back to the ICU in the same hospital and uh, put into an induced coma for a couple days to give his body to rest. And he did wake up from that, but now this organism is now in his whole body. He was like fully, like systemically infected. And from that moment on, he was dying a little bit more each day. And it was just horrible to watch. He lost a hundred pounds off of his frame. He was in and out of a real coma that he wasn't waking up from. And one day I heard some colleagues on, on a conference call when I was trying to, you know, keep one tether back to the, the real world. And they said, does anybody realize that, you know, does anybody told Steph that her husband is going to die? And I thought, oh, my God, like nobody has. And I cradled the phone in my arms like a baby. And I thought, I, they just didn't want to tell me. And I'm going to lose them unless I do something. So I had this conversation with Tom and asked him if he wanted to live. And I didn't know if he could even hear me. But I said, if you want to live, please squeeze my hand and I'll leave no stone unturned. And he squeezed my hand. Now, I mean, I was thrilled, but I thought, you know, what am I going to do? Like, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know how to, how to cure this thing. But I did what anybody would do in my shoes because I'm a scientist. I went home and I hit PubMed, you know, the Google Scholar for Scientists that the National Library of Medicine has developed. And I found this ancient 100-year-old therapy called phage therapy, which are essentially these bacteriophages are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. And I had heard about them in my microbiology classes way back in the 1980s, but I never knew that they'd been used to treat bacterial infections. Well, it turned out that they had, but they were considered experimental treatment in the West, and they're only being used in the former Soviet Union and in parts of um, Eastern Europe. So I asked the colleagues that were treating Tom, I said, you know, could we use phage therapy to treat Tom? And that lead uh, infectious disease doctor, Dr. Chip Schooley, who's a close colleague of mine, he said, what an interesting and intriguing idea. You know, if you can find phages that match to Tom's bacterial isolate, I'll call the FDA and, and request compassionate use permission for us to use phage therapy to, to cure them. But I've never done this before, and, and I don't know anybody who has, so, you know, it's, it's a long shot. Anyway, long story short, a global village of researchers from all over the world stepped up, including uh, researchers from Texas A&M University, San Diego State University, and even the U.S. Navy 
um, chipped in and we found phages in the nick of time to match Tom's bacteria and we injected them into his body a billion phages per dose every two hours. We didn't know if we were going to kill him or cure him, but three days later, he lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. And I'm telling you, it was the happiest day of my life. So that's our crazy story. I left a lot of it out, but it's in our book, The Perfect Predator, if you want to hear more details. You want to say hi, Tom? Hi, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling these days? I'm feeling great. Can't complain. Well, I could, but well, nobody's going to listen after I, I got <laughs> saved like this. Well, it's better than the alternative, right? You're damn right. <laughs> That was amazing. Thank you so much, Stephanie. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and share your story with us. We really, really do. It's, oh man, what, yeah. a, what a bonkers story. I really, really, and we'll mention this again, but I really, really encourage everyone to go out there and read The Perfect Predator, which is the book that she wrote about this experience. It was unput downable if that's a word <laughs> I could not put it down how about that <laughs> I really hope that that's a word yeah I don't think it is <laughs> hi I'm Erin Welsh and I'm Erin Almond Updike and this is this podcast will kill you so today we're talking about antibiotic resistance yes you thought you heard all that you wanted to know about antibiotics in the last episode no way nope wrong there's so not much so more. fast there is so much more in the world of antibiotics to learn about, to read about, to hear about, and that's what we're doing this episode. We promise it's not all depressing. Like, it's mostly depressing, but... Yeah, we're going to end it on a hope for the future note, Absolutely, I think. yeah. Um, a couple of things. We completely forgot, Aaron and our excitement to do the episode last week, to talk about why we were so excited beyond just the fact that it was antibiotics. It was our 50th regular season episode. I totally forgot about that. Oh my gosh. I can't I believe we've made that many episodes. I really can't. I remember like going back to one of the earlier ones and I remember how we used to be like, oh my gosh, episode seven. Can you believe we've made it this far? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I was shocked that we made it to seven episodes. So <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. It was a true sentiment at the time. <laughs> um, the other thing is that I completely forgot to mention where the firsthand account came from in the antibiotics episode. And that was, I mean, it's like we're amateurs at you this. Know, On our 50th episode, we failed to do the most important things. Sometimes. The days yeah. just get to you. <laughs> so that 
So the firsthand account from our last episode on antibiotics came from a book called The Youngest Science by Lewis Thomas. Okay, so Aaron, to accompany our quarantini for the antibiotics episode, which Mm -hmm. was penicillin, the Mm -hmm. classic cocktail, what are we drinking this week? This week we're drinking the plasmid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if that's not funny to you now, it will be funny as soon as I explain the biology of antibiotic resistance. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You're like, why are they laughing so hard? Uh, Aaron, Uh, what's in the plasmid? Great question. It is mezcal, like a honey mint simple syrup, and lime juice. It's kind of like a penicillin, but it's a take on a penicillin. It's a plasmid of a penicillin. Exactly. It's That's a not plasmid right. of it's a plasmid <laughs> containing resistance to penicillin. Uh, we will post the recipe for the alcoholic quarantini and the non-alcoholic placebarita on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com, as well as all of our social media channels. Any other business? I don't think so. Let's get right to it. I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> we'll take one quick break first. Antibiotic resistance. Okay. It's a big topic, so we're going to break it down. Here's how. First of all, hopefully everyone's listened to the antibiotics episode, so you have a framework for how antibiotics work. As a very brief overview, antibiotics are designed to either kill or halt the growth of bacteria, and they do so by targeting various elements of bacterial cell walls, protein synthesis, DNA replication, or metabolism. That's our whole episode in 10 seconds. Well, that's a lot shorter than what the episode actually turned out to be, (laughs) Erin. Okay, so the question first on a basic level is... What are the mechanisms of antibiotic resistance? Like, how do bacteria actually resist these antibiotics? Just sheer force of will. That's that's the answer. Episode over. (laughs) (laughs) Once we understand that, then we can ask two bigger picture questions. What drives antibiotic resistance? And how does this resistance spread through populations? Okay. Are you excited? I'm super excited. All right. So. (laughs) What are the mechanisms of resistance? First of all, you can have intrinsic resistance and you can have acquired resistance. If you are you being bacteria. (laughs) Right. Okay. I'm I'm a bacterial cell. You're a bacterial cell. (laughs) So very broadly, intrinsic resistance makes a lot of sense in the context that a lot of our antibiotics come from bacterial products, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that a streptomyces bacteria, for example, will be naturally resistant to streptomycin. That makes sense, yeah. So that is intrinsic resistance, which is neither the interesting nor the concerning part of antibiotic resistance. So that's all we'll say about it. What is both interesting (laughs) and concerning is acquired resistance. Mm -hmm. And there are a few big categories of mechanisms by which bacteria can evade the effects of antibiotics. Let's go through them. Number one, 
bacteria can resist antibiotics by changing the target enzymes. So what does that mean? For drugs like quinolones that we talked about, fluoroquinolones, or rifampin, or the sulfonamides, these are drugs that bind directly to certain enzymes, DNA gyrase or RNA polymerase. So if bacteria modify these enzymes slightly, change their structure just a little bit, then these antibiotic compounds are no longer able to bind to them. Boom, they don't work. Makes sense. And that's that seems like a relatively um, easy or like a relatively simple mutation would be necessary. Like one little quirk. Exactly. One little quirk for sure. Another way that's actually very similar In the case of the classes of antibiotics that work by binding to ribosomes instead of enzymes, if bacteria evolve mutations to their ribosomes such that antibiotics can no longer bind, then again, boom, resistance. That's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. Okay. So we can alter our enzymes that the antibiotics bind to, or we can alter the proteins such as ribosomes that antibiotics bind to. All right. Two other ways that are also related. Remember that gram-negative bacteria especially have a second membrane that surrounds the outside of their cell wall. Right. And this membrane is less permeable than the cell wall is. So we know that gram-negative bacteria are already harder to target with antibiotics because of that. Mm -hmm. So for gram-negative bacteria, the way that antibiotics enter the cells is through pores, porins, little channels in the membrane. Well, if antibiotics can only enter certain porins and bacteria then evolve changes either to the type of porins or sometimes just to the number of pores on their surface, that can make them more resistant to certain classes of antibiotics. Makes sense. Makes sense, right? (laughs) Basically just changing the way that antibiotics are able to get into the cell, making it harder for antibiotics to get in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another similar mechanism is you could kick antibiotics out at a faster rate. So these are called efflux pumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Bacteria have efflux pumps because especially when they have, especially gram-negative bacteria that have two layers of membrane plus a cell wall, they have to be able to get stuff in and out of their cells. So efflux pumps are a way that they can shuttle molecules outside of their cells. And it turns out that the genes for these types of efflux pumps aren't turned on all of the time because they can be quite costly. They can lead to bacteria exporting too much stuff, and that can change the membrane potential of their cells and ultimately lead to cell death. Okay, that's interesting. That makes sense, too. I like that, though. Yeah, but in the face of antibiotics, if you can upregulate those efflux pumps, then you can ship the antibiotic molecules out of the cell before they have time to kill you. Right, so it's it's worth it. Even though it's costly, it's worth it in the face of something that is actually going to kill you. <laughs> that is like the... That's like antibiotic resistance in a nutshell. It's worth it if the antibiotic is going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's evolution in a nutshell. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> okay, so those are the two other ways. You can change your efflux pumps and you can change your porins, right? Make it harder for antibiotics to get in or export them out even faster. 
And then the last way that you can evade antibiotics is by changing the antibiotics themselves. This is my personal favorite mechanism. Ooh. Right? So bacteria can evolve ways to alter the antibiotic compounds themselves and render them useless. So for this, I'm going to actually go through a couple of examples. There's a lot of different ways that bacteria can do this. So we'll go through two examples of it. The first are aminoglycosides, which you might remember from our last episode. These are streptomycin, tobermycin. These act on bacterial protein synthesis. They bind to ribosomes, okay? Mm -hmm. So bacteria can produce enzymes, naturally produce enzymes, that bind to these antibiotics and add stuff to them, whether it's a phosphate or just a little carbon group, and that changes the structure of the aminoglycoside itself so that it no longer works. It basically inactivates it. That seems like much trickier to pull off. Maybe, but they do it really well. It's really cool. All right. (laughs) The other most famous example of this are, of course, the beta-lactamases. Have you heard of this? Yes, there are enzymes that like actually break down the beta-lactam ring, right? Yes, and the beta-lactam ring is how beta-lactam antibiotics like penicillin and cephalosporin actually work. So many bacteria, especially gram-positives, produce these enzymes called beta-lactamases that bind to and inactivate that beta-lactam ring. It is so common, like beta-lactamases are so common and ubiquitous that we actually have a whole nother set of drugs that we call beta-lactamase inhibitors. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. these drugs inhibit or reduce the activity of those enzymes. So it's actually really common that when we give a beta-lactam antibiotic like amoxicillin, we give it in combination with a beta-lactamase inhibitor like clavulonic acid. That combination is called augmentin. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the lactamase inhibitors hold back the little guards and they're like, no, no, you can invade the castle. Okay, so <laughs> there's, a series, there's a series of videos that most med students, any med student listening is going to laugh really hard at that because we watch these videos called Sketchy Micro and they show uh-huh. like beta lactams are these rings and then the beta lactamases are these little like laser shooters that shoot away the beta-lactams. And then you have like the clavulonic acid that has like a armor that comes in. Anyway. <laughs> I like it. I like it's it. really great. I uh, mean, it's very easy to, to envision all these as like little cartoons for sure. Yes. Oh, and they they help you learn it a lot, a lot easier. Um, Yeah. So it's very cool. We already have, like, we've known that beta-lactamases exist for so long that we already have drugs that specifically target those but Mm -hmm. what's scary is that now many bacteria are what they what we call extended spectrum beta lactamase producers so they're making even stronger beta lactamases that can break even more of our drugs essentially yeah i mean that's sort of the theme like this is the same story ever like over and over again with just tiny variations exactly so then that kind of gets to the next question, which is what actually drives this resistance? Why is it that we have resistance cropping up again and again? 
And we've kind of already touched on it, but the basic answer is mutation and selection. Right. It's a numbers game. Yeah. So for resistance to happen, first, a gene for that resistance, any one of those types of resistance that I already mentioned, a gene for that has to appear in the population. And often this happens by random mutation, which seems like it should be very unlikely, right? (laughs) Well, given the generation times and how many generations, like even within a year or something, a strain of E. coli will have, it's not. It becomes surprising that there's not resistance rather than surprising that there is. Would you like to put some hard numbers on that, Erin? You know that I would, Erin. So mutations like this that can provide resistance occur about once every 10 million cells. And because many bacterial species divide so frequently, like once every half an hour, it would only take six hours to get to 10 million cells. (laughs) And all it takes is one. All it takes is one. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So that's the first step, right? Mutation. You have to mutate your DNA in such a way that you produce one of those changes. And then the second thing that has to happen is selection pressure which essentially means you have to wipe out most but not all of the bacteria in a population. Mm -hmm. So let's put some numbers on this again. Let's say you have like 10,000 bacteria living in a wound on your hand. If you killed 9,000 of those bacteria by any means, antibiotics or otherwise, you have selected 1,000 survivors. Mm -hmm. Those 1,000 survivors will go on to reproduce... And oftentimes, those 1,000 survivors aren't representative of that whole 10,000 group of bacteria, right? They all have their own little mutations that are slightly different. But those are the ones that are going to go on and reproduce. So if any of those 1,000 had the ability to resist an antibiotic, those are going to be the ones that now grow and proliferate. Right. Okay. Because remember, like I mentioned, especially with efflux pumps, but this is true for many of those other mechanisms of resistance, a lot of the genes that confer resistance to antibiotics are not useful, and in some cases they're harmful, in the absence of antibiotics. Right. So you could see over time, if you don't put any selection pressure on you know, a bacterial strain as they replicate and replicate and replicate, then the resistance genes might drop out because it's more costly to maintain. Exactly. Right. Okay. So then how does this gene that's present in, let's say, a couple of those 1,000 bacteria that are left, how does it spread through a population? Because we see antibiotic resistance growing at very rapid rates, right? Right. So to understand this, we basically just have to know that bacteria don't just reproduce by fission, right? They, that's how they mainly reproduce, but they also can transfer genetic material between cells. Okay. So this is, gets, I'll just get so excited about this. <laughs> I think we talked about this in E. coli, right? With Joshua Definitely. Letterberg. I think so. Who discovered this. Yeah. So there are three ways that bacteria can introduce some variety into their genes besides just mutation. Conjugation, transformation, and transduction. Conjugation is kind of like bacterial sex. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, two bacteria get together, they pull out their pillus, and then they attach their pillus to their partner's pillus, and then they can share plasmids. Plasmids are circles of DNA, just little round nuggets, pieces of DNA, and they can transfer them. So they can like hand a plasmid to their partner, and they can grab a plasmid from their partner, and sometimes... Oftentimes, those little plasmids have super useful things on them, like a better efflux pump or a new type of beta-lactamase, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's conjugation. Transformation is when bacteria pick up DNA from the environment. So if their neighbor dies and explodes and leaves a bunch of DNA floating around, another bacterium can swim by and pick some of that up. And finally, transduction is when viruses get involved. So bacteriophage, which are viruses that infect bacteria. Okay, these are important. (laughs) (laughs) These bacteriophages have to use host cell machinery in order to reproduce. So what they do is they inject their DNA into a bacterium, and then some of that DNA can get incorporated into the bacterial DNA. So then every time a virus picks up and infects a new bacterium, they might transfer a little bit of that bacterial DNA to a neighboring cell. That is super cool. Also, we forgot to mention this early on, but you will hear a lot more about phages and their potential role as treatment for antibiotic-resistant infections later on in the episode. Oh, yeah. from. Big time. Stephanie as well. Big time, big time. So, I mean, that's pretty much that's pretty much how resistance works, okay? So if we go back to that population of 10,000 bacteria that lives in your festering hand wound, okay? Just to kind of sum all this up. Mm-hmm. Actually, let's call it 10 million bacteria. Okay. okay. Now my hand wound is really, really just <laughs> it's oozing pussy. with bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So you cut yourself. Now you have 10 million bacteria in the cut on your hand. And one of them happens to be resistant to penicillin. And that's what you went to the doctor and that's what they're going to use to treat your hand infection. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you take the penicillin and it wipes out all but one of those bacteria, right? Mm-hmm. You have just one lone bacterium left. That's not a problem for your hand wound necessarily, but that single bacterium is going to continue to multiply and multiply. And now inevitably, your hand is exposed to tons of other bacteria all the time, right? Everything you touch is covered in bacteria. So eventually, that one bacterium that was left and now reproducing that colony that's growing, is going to come into contact with some new bacteria. And he'll probably go, hey, um, just so you guys know, if you're planning on making a home here, all my friends just got wiped out by penicillin recently, and I have this little plasmid. It seems really helpful. Like, I survived. So do you, do you want this? It's just a little beta-lactamase. Do you, do you want one? <laughs> and all of the new bacteria are going to be like, yeah, heck yeah, give me one of those. So... They'll get together, conjugate, and share that plasmid with their friends. <laughs> Et voila, <laughs> antibiotic resistance. I like. I feel like we have this this 
idea of an antibiotic resistant bacteria to be completely like bulletproof basically Mm -hmm. but your body can still fight off that infection oh for sure yeah yeah for sure for sure the other thing too though is that many of these antibiotic resistance genes come from environmental bacteria So they don't necessarily have to originate by mutation in that one bacterium that was left behind. They could have been introduced from outside populations to begin with, and then they can spread because of selection pressures. Oh, yeah. And I'll I'll talk about some of those sources of resistance. I can't wait. (laughs) So, yeah, that was a lot. But that was antibiotic resistance in a nutshell. I loved it. I loved it. Oh, good. I'm so glad. So, Erin, how the heck did we get here? I can't wait to tell you. Should we take a quick break first? Let's do that. So, Erin, you might think that this story, the story of antibiotic resistance, maybe it starts with the first sulfonamide or penicillin-resistant strains of bacteria that were found in hospitals in the 1940s. Are you going to tell me it's way further back than that? Oh, way, way, (laughs) way further back. Like millennia, millions of years even? Uh, Erin. Okay. Okay, so even today, like you said, many of the antibiotics that we use are compounds produced by microbes, fungi, or other bacterial species. And in the early years of antibiotics, they were all like that. Mm -hmm. Like synthetic antibiotics really only started to become developed in the past few decades. And so I think it's easy to take it for granted sometimes that these antibiotic compounds are just produced by these soil microbes or fungi and not question why exactly they might have evolved to produce substances that can kill bacteria. Because Mm -hmm. like you said, when you're producing something like that, it can be a costly thing. Like it can be a costly thing to kind of go above and beyond just simply replicating yourself and like getting food. I feel like we talk a lot about this in our plant crossover episodes with Matt. Like it takes a lot for plants to make these compounds that kill us. It takes a lot for bacteria to make these compounds that kill other bacteria. Yep. It was just like that with the with the botulism episode. Mm-hmm. Like, why does this toxin exist? Yeah. So why do these compounds exist in nature? They didn't just arise in the 1940s with <laughs> penicillin. Not. Like, they've been there for millions of years. Okay, so what do these compounds do in nature? Yeah. So let's just think about a little handful of soil. Okay. Go outside and you grab some soil. Okay. In that soil, you have this beautiful complex, rich world of microbes, even though it looks just like a handful of soil, it's really like teeming with microbial life. And each one of these microbes are all pushing and pulling and fighting for space and basically doing what it takes to continue on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. This is a battle that has been going on for millions of years. And over that time, some microbes have evolved strategies to help them stay one step ahead of the race to gain just a little more ground. An antibiotic is one example of this type of strategy. 
In nature, these antimicrobial compounds actually help the bacteria or fungi that produce them in any number of ways, mm -hmm. like to make super durable biofilms or to more easily invade an animal cell, type 3 secretion system, <laughs> or to clear the competition in a particular area, or to also better work alongside another group of bacteria. Mm -hmm. So they actually can help some groups of bacteria. Mm. And it's also important to remember that in nature, the amount of antibiotic compounds produced by some of these bacteria or fungi, especially those that make something like tetracycline, for example, is super small, mm. like nowhere near what a therapeutic dose would be for humans. That is really important to keep in mind. Yeah. Wow. Really important. Yeah. And so when we, like when we make antibiotics in a lab or in an industry setting, you are like farming penicillin. Mm -hmm. Like you are like farming the, the fungi and the bacteria. You're making gobs and gobs and gobs of it, which wouldn't happen in IRL. nature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or IRL. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so yeah, make a mental note of that. Okay. So even though we may tend to think of these antibiotic compounds as these brute force drugs that punch holes in cell walls or tear apart ribosomes, their role in nature is much more nuanced mm. and much more longstanding. So it makes sense then that if these microbes have evolved the ability to produce antibiotic compounds over thousands or millions of years, the bacteria that they are targeting with those antibiotics have also evolved a trick or two. Resistance genes. Yeah. And this isn't a guess. This isn't just like the logical flow. Antibiotic resistance is ancient, mm -hmm. which is actually the you know, word for word title of a paper that I read, <laughs> peer reviewed paper. And in this paper, they analyzed 30,000 year old permafrost sediment to look for genetic traces of antibiotic resistance. And guess what they found? They found genes that gave resistance to beta lactams, tetracycline, glycopeptides, even vancomycin antibiotics. Yeah, wow. So at least roughly 29,030 years before penicillin was discovered. These mm. resistance genes existed. Just twenty nine thousand years, no big deal. <laughs> well, I think I think that this at least helps to a small degree in understanding just how quickly some of these resistance genes have popped up. Because, yeah. like you said, some have arisen just through mutation. So, some you could take, you could start in the lab and start with like, or on a, a human body and start mm -hmm. with you know a colony of a particular type of bacteria. And then you could evolve resistance just by applying that selection pressure. But I think it's also important to remember that some of these mutations, maybe the ones that are a little bit more complex, some of the genes that provide resistance to more complex antibiotic structures, they might have roots already just in nature. Right. And many, many bacteria already have these genes. They might just not be turned on right until they face the selection pressure so that's the other thing is like they might be there they're just not using them yet right exactly you know what's funny Erin you say exactly right and I say right exactly <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed this when I'm editing <laughs> it's very funny to me okay now I'm gonna be self-conscious about it okay <laughs> All right, so now we have a little bit better idea of the ancient roots of some of these resistance genes, mm -hmm. but how do they spread so far and so wide so quickly? 
Yeah. And you talked about the mechanisms of this. Mm-hmm. So like the transfer of genetic material through all these different strategies. But humans have been a huge helping hand oh, in for sure. the geographic spread of this. Bacteria can only move so far, Aaron. It's true. It's <laughs> very true. Okay. So Aaron, you asked, how did we get here? Yeah. And like you always do. I always do. And I think that's really the perfect question to ask about antibiotic resistance, because only by understanding what has driven the rise of resistance are we going to be able to have a chance of slowing it or Mm -hmm. stopping it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're going to talk a little bit about what here actually looks like in terms of how do we get here. Right. But spoiler alert, it is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it's not great. That's an understatement. (laughs) It's an understatement, yeah. (laughs) So we see widespread multi-drug resistant bacterial species across the world. Mm -hmm. And for many microbes, our options have completely run out. Like we are back in the age of before antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So far, with maybe one or two exceptions, this seems to be a one-way street. So, like, resistance seems to be only increasing. And we've stopped asking the question, will antibiotic resistance emerge against a particular antibiotic? And now it's just a matter of when will it emerge. Mm -hmm. And this state of things has been a long time coming. And this massive increase in antibiotic-resistant bacteria should not have come as a surprise to anyone. And for many people, it didn't. So in 1945, the same year that he was awarded the Nobel Prize for his discovery of penicillin, Alexander Fleming warned about how easy it was to make microbes resistant to penicillin. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I quoted this directly in the MRSA episode. I think that you did, because we have definitely quoted this before. Okay. It's a great quote. Okay. I don't know if it's the same one, because there were a few that I was choosing between. So. We'll see if I, if I was consistent in my choices. <laughs> okay. So he, he said specifically about improper use, quote, the greatest possibility of evil in self-medication is the use of too small doses so that instead of clearing up infection, the microbes are educated to resist penicillin and a host of penicillin fast organisms is bred out, which can be passed to other individuals and from them to others until they reach someone who gets a septicemia or an ammonia, which penicillin cannot save. Mm. So like this was in 1945. This was a couple years after it was after penicillin was introduced to soldiers and like a year after or the year it was released to the public. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like we saw it coming. We saw it coming. Despite these warnings, penicillin was everywhere. It was available over the counter in the U.S. until the mid-1950s and like we said, is still available without a prescription in many places. It was put in cough drops, throat sprays, mouthwashes, soaps, you name it. Oh my gosh. At one point, Erin... It was even available as like a powdered daily dose human growth promoter. Stop it. Yep. Like you could a buy powdered penis- penicillin. Emergency just, penicillin? Emergency protein powder, just whatever. Oh, just no. pop that into your antibiotic laden milk. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. And even though regulation slowly increased, it didn't do so uniformly, Mm -hmm. right? 
And even today, antimicrobials or antibiotics can still be found in products you never would have expected them to, and their use is still incredibly widespread and not as well monitored, especially in some places. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and as we've said a thousand times on this podcast, pathogens don't respect political boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> so the rise of an antibiotic-resistant strain of bacteria somewhere is a rise everywhere. Right. The story of the rise of antibiotic resistance itself is pretty simple and pretty repetitive. <laughs> you develop a new antibiotic, and then depending on how effective it is and how broad its targets are, it becomes the hot ticket item and is widely used. And then there's a ton of selection pressure, and so resistance develops, and then resistance spreads quickly as well. And then that antibiotic is no longer the miracle drug that was promised and gets resigned to the back shelf. Mm -hmm. The microbes win. Another antibiotic comes along. Resistance develops. It gets shoved to the back shelf. Another antibiotic, more resistance. Rinse and repeat. Like, this has been going on since the creation of penicillin. Right. And since that time, there have been more than 150 antibiotics that have been developed. And resistance has been found for all or nearly all of them. Mm-hmm. I watched a documentary called Resistance that I really enjoyed, and I'm going to borrow one of the graphics that they presented and put it in audio form as a way of illustrating the rise of resistance, because it's kind of amazing to see just how quickly okay. it became like widespread. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Sulfonamides, introduced 1935, resistance detected 1940. Penicillin, 1942, introduced... Resistance, 1945. Streptomycin, introduced 1944. Resistance, 1958. Tetracycline, introduced 1948. Resistance, 1954. Mm -hmm. Chloramphenicol, introduced 1949. Resistance detected 1956. And so on and so on. Like this goes, I could list this with like 10 more mm -hmm. antibiotics that like you would recognize by name. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, incredible. Mm -hmm. And so... It became increasingly apparent, obviously, as we are aware today, that resistance is inevitable. It's just like Thanos. I'm just another kidding. reference. Another another Marvel, Marvel reference. reference. <laughs> <laughs> but resistance is what we expect. And the discovery of plasmids and the ability of bacteria to transfer genes, not just within species, but across them in the 1950s is when those things were kind of discovered or developed. That helped us a lot in terms of understanding the mechanism and how these bacteria were able to gain resistance so quickly and how it could spread so rapidly. Mm -hmm. But still, enthusiasm for these miracle drugs and maybe like our own hubris that we could, oh, we'll just, keep, we'll just keep going digging in the soil or we'll go here and there and we'll just keep finding new soil bacteria to make new antibiotics. Like that maybe also blinded us to the horrific implications that these discoveries carried, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. The development of antibiotics in the 20th century was arguably the most impactful, or at least one of the most impactful medical advancements that we have ever seen. Mm -hmm. Like, it must have been incredible. Yeah. But within a matter of decades, we seem to be witnessing the rise and fall of these wonder drugs. Mm -hmm. So the big question is, where did we go wrong? The short answer is through overuse or improper use in both medical and agricultural settings. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit deeper into each. As we are wont to do. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's start with the medical side of things. As I've mentioned before, once they came onto the scene, antibiotics were indiscriminately used for anything that might be, could be, possibly was a bacterial infection. Mm -hmm. And they were even used preventatively, right? And they still are used preventatively. That's true, actually. We still... In surgery and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like... In surgery, though, it like really reduces mortality. So Right, right, right. And so, yeah. And so I think one thing that I want to get across is that antibiotics still should be used. Right. Like they're not bad things. They're no, still yeah. hugely important. <laughs> but we need to really consider how we use them so that we save them for when we really need them. Need them. Right. So it's sort of proper use, right? I'm not saying it's it's reducing their overuse and turning improper use into proper use. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Because resistance will continue to happen, but at least we can slow it down a bit. Mm -hmm. Okay. So on the medical side of things, I see this falling into three different issues. So the first lies with improper prescription. Mm -hmm. And so particularly in the earlier days of antibiotics, this was a huge issue, but it also has continued to be a huge issue. Because there sometimes might be a thought that like, okay, if there's a 95% chance that an infection is viral and a 5% chance that it's bacterial, you might just want to prescribe that antibiotic anyway, because if it's bacterial, then you could wipe out that infection and reduce the suffering of your patient. And if it's not, well, what's the harm to that patient? It's thought on an individual patient level scale, right? right. And that makes sense. Yeah. And jumping ahead a bit... A study showed that in 2010, 80% of primary care doctors and 70% of emergency room doctors were prescribing antibiotics for acute bronchitis, mm-hmm. which is viral. Almost always viral. Yeah. Almost always. And so then that's where we get into the almost always issue. Right. So it's yep. sort of a matter of treating the individual versus considering the group as a whole. It's mm-hmm. a very tricky decision. It's this a very tricky situation. A thing I think a lot about because... My whole background is in public health and like thinking about these things on a population level. And now I'm going into medicine where you're like concerned about the patient in front of you. And there's often a conflict between what's best for the individual patient and what is best for the public. And it is a tricky landmine. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm not going to talk about what we should do and the ways we should change it, but I think the consensus is is that we we do need to change sort of the oh, yeah. directives of this, yeah. We need to change how we use them. Like uh, antibiotics are also not benign, right? Like they have we talked about this in the last episode. They have side effects, right? They're wiping right. out your microbiome. They're going to cause side effects. So they're also not benign to give a patient, to give a person antibiotics if they don't really need them. Right. And this is something that we're becoming more and more aware of. Right. As we talk about the microbiome and some antibiotics, like you said, are also toxic in themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they have, they damage certain organs. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. And then there's also just sanitation issues within hospitals. So, I mean, there are, when you're in a hospital, the rate of people that have infections, it's high. Like infections are very high there, very prevalent. And this is talking about drug-resistant and drugs and antibiotic-susceptible infections. Right. And this makes transfer between patients really easy. Mm -hmm. And this just speaks to the nature also of how equipped these bacteria are to keeping their foothold in a place and surviving. Like some of these are really, really difficult to get rid of. Yeah. And so a hospital just provides tons of opportunities 
for bacteria to exchange info and to settle onto the skin or into the surgical incision site or into the intestine of someone who happens to be in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Finally, there's the third issue, which is that people who are prescribed antibiotics might not take them properly. Mm -hmm. So they might not finish their course. By that, I mean, if you're prescribed 10 days of an antibiotic and you only take five because you start feeling better, all you've done is kind of train the bacteria in your body to become resistant. And so if that happens and you get severely sick and then you have to go to the hospital and then you're bringing your drug-resistant bacteria into the hospital, yeah, which is like, come on, <laughs> which is, is not good. And then that same 2010 study that I mentioned just a little bit ago, mm -hmm. they also showed that up to 40% of people fail to complete their full course of antibiotics. Oh, yeah. And so these three healthcare issues have been a part of what is driving antibiotic resistance in hospital and community settings. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, I have to say that it doesn't, like we have made some forward progress in terms of regulating them, but it's, we still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Okay, but that's just the medical side of things. We're only getting started. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is horrifying. Because even if tomorrow we enacted all of those changes, it might slow down the spread of resistance in healthcare settings, but it wouldn't stop the problem entirely. Mm -mm. And a small part of that is due simply to the nature of resistance. It's due to this arms race of bacteria and antibiotic compounds. Resistance will always evolve. Mm -hmm. But another huge part is improper antibiotic use in agriculture. And we talked a bit about this in the last episode, but I want to go more into the history of this since it's such an integral part of the story of resistance. So this history starts with yet another chance discovery. When a researcher was looking for a natural source of B12 to supplement the food of chickens to help them grow better. Okay. So he learned that Streptomyces areophasins produces vitamin B12 during the fermentation process for making streptomycin. Mm. So he was like, hey, can I have some of that waste from fermentation, just like the leftover gunk or whatever? I'm going to mix it into the chicken's food and just see what happens. Okay. And the results were remarkable. Like the chickens grew tremendously, much faster than he expected due to just B12. Huh. And so did the piglets that he also tried it out on. Uh -oh. He was like, okay, is it actually the B12 that's in the fermentation waste, or is it trace amounts of the antibiotic that's causing this growth? And maybe he was like, well, maybe it's suppressing gut, like harmful gut bacteria or something else. Like, regardless of the reason, he couldn't deny that they were actually having an effect. So, mm -hmm. on average, livestock that were fed these growth promoters grew 3 to 11% faster than their non antibiotic ridden counterparts. But I've seen actually much higher rates quoted, particularly early, early on in these experiments. Oh. And this led to because you could make more meat faster, you could sell more meat. And so, consumption overall really grew. And then it kind of, in that way, firmly established these growth promoters, so-called growth promoters, as a necessary part of agriculture. And so I'm going to use the term growth promoters a lot. And that basically means these trace amounts, so like non-therapeutic doses of antibiotics that are included in food for animals, okay, like agricultural animals, livestock. Okay. Okay. So these antibiotic-laced foods plus preemptive treatment, so like not just as growth promoters, but actually like, oh, we're going to dose you so that you don't get 
this or that ulcer or whatever. That led to some farmers just packing them all in, all these animals in as tightly as possible because they were secure in the knowledge that the crowd diseases that they had previously been worried about wouldn't be much of a concern with these antibiotics. And so it really led to the rise of like the industry, some of the, the more the nastier sides of the industry that we see. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that part of it, mm-hmm. but that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the drug companies that were producing these antibiotics ate it up. Or rather, they were enthusiastic about the livestock eating up their (laughs) antibiotic fermentation waste products. Because this was all stuff that was like, they were just throwing it away anyway. So it's great for them. So subtherapeutic doses of antibiotics were sold as growth promoters starting in the 1950s. And the huge threat of antibiotic resistance had been known and discussed for at least a decade before that. And this basically provided the perfect breeding ground for antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about, like, think about a, a industrial farm full of pigs packed in, you know, all close to one another, and then they're all dosed with antibiotics, mm-hmm. like, th- bacteria, th- they can move so easily that mm-hmm. way. Resistance can move so easily that way. Like, it's, and manure is one of the best sources for antibiotic resistance bacteria, apparently. Oh, gosh. And then there's runoff. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) and it wasn't just restricted to growth promoters and food. Farmers began toying with different ways to deliver the antibiotics to the animals. So they were like in the water before they were slaughtered. Like here's some water um, injected, injected into the areas for prime cuts. What? Painting, painting raw steak with antibiotics or mixing them in with ground beef. I'm sorry, why would you mix it in with the meat that you're selling to humans? What What is the purpose of that? Well, because then you could, it has a longer shelf life. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. Oh. Dude, spinach was even washed in streptomycin. <gasps> I'm so serious. <laughs> I don't Chickens ever want to eat anything again. <laughs> Chickens were literally sold soaking in antibiotics because that would lengthen their shelf life. My face. So like you could squeeze out like the chicken juices from a raw chicken at the grocery store back then and you could get like antibiotics in those juices. The world got its first taste of how the use of antibiotics on farms bled into human life in the 1950s, around the same time when it was first started started. to ramp up. Oh, my God. Around this time, penicillin had been made prescription only in the U.S. and in Britain, partly because the rates of penicillin allergy were just like skyrocketing. Okay. And so with these increased regulations, physicians and epidemiologists expected to see fewer penicillin allergies crop up. Makes sense, right? Mm. No, Mm. that's not what they saw. (laughs) Instead, they saw an increase. They saw a surge. And it turns out that the source of the penicillin, this is done through like a lot of detective work, the source of the penicillin was in the milk that people were drinking. Some milk contained so much penicillin that it could have been sold as a drug. Milk. It was therapeutic doses, yes. 
Grody. So this finding led the FDA, at least, to rule that you could no longer treat meat with antibiotics prior to it being sold. Okay, so like my steaks are not washed in antibiotics anymore? No, no. That's okay. all That's all done. Phew. Small yeah. blessings. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this did nothing to stop the addition of antibiotics in feed for mm. animals as a growth promoter. Mm-hmm. And then there was a series of studies in the 1960s that clearly demonstrated that growth promoters led to the rapid development of resistance in microbes colonizing both the animals as well as the people working with the animals. So like, this was a kind of a cut and dried, very eye-opening experiment. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, this was taken somewhat seriously by governments. So the UK took action early on in limiting antibiotic use in agriculture. Starting in 1971, they banned antibiotics as growth promoters if those antibiotics were used to treat disease in animals and humans. Okay. So, like, you can no longer use tetracyclines because we use those to treat disease. For example. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And you had to have a prescription for them if you wanted to use them therapeutically. Okay. And the U.S. was, like, this close to following suit. Oh, dear. But, you know. (laughs) We didn't. (laughs) A little bit after this decision in the UK, the FDA was like, I'm going to lay down the law and we're going to limit the use of antibiotics purely to therapeutic purposes. But then the mighty dollar of the agricultural industry overruled. Representative Jamie Witten, who was like part of the spokesperson for this industry, basically, said that he would hold hostage the budget of the FDA if the regulations passed. And so, because he had somehow he had that power, Aaron. I don't know. So the White House gave in, since the budget holdup would have also hurt many other important projects. And so, Witten, this representative, insisted that the data in support of banning the use of non-therapeutic antibiotics in agriculture was incomplete and biased against farmers. And so then they were like, okay, well, we want the farmers, we want the agricultural industry to design their own projects and do their own research to figure out what the truth is. Oh, there's no bias there at all. Right. I mean, the the burden of proof has been on epidemiologists and researchers to find that antibiotic use in agricultural settings leads to antibiotic resistance that is clinically important in humans. Yeah. Right. But this insistence that those studies were inaccurate or that the research was incomplete was just a flat out lie. Mm. Because in the 1970s, a researcher named Dr. Stuart Levy wanted to see how rapidly resistance could develop or spread in livestock given these growth promoters. So he tested out some young chickens who were given tetracycline. Within 36 hours of first being given the feed laced with tetracycline, their gut E. coli was resistant. 36 hours. So that's scary enough. And tetracycline is like, was a broad spectrum, Mm -hmm. just like awesome, widely used drug. Was. Was. (laughs) And so that's scary enough on its own. But what made it even scarier is that over the next three months, the E. coli also added to its arsenal genes that made it resistant to ampicillin, streptomycin, and sulfonamides. And the chickens had never even received any of those drugs. Whoa. 
the tetracycline had acted like a call to arms for these bacteria. <gasps> like we've faced and defeated one antibiotic, so we need to be prepared for any others that might come our way. Man, oh man. And I bet you didn't think that the study could show even more concerning results, but it did. Ooh. And you're not going to be surprised by them. But <laughs> Levy found the same antibiotic resistance in the gut E. coli of the farmers and the families of those farmers that had kept the chickens. Oh, None dear. of them had received tetracycline. Right. There have been literally dozens, dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed articles demonstrating clearly that antibiotic use in animals impacts humans. Two epidemiologists and physicians and microbiologists and biochemists, whether or not rampant use of subtherapeutic levels of antibiotics was leading to a huge increase in resistance and resistant organisms, that wasn't a scientific question. Right. It was firmly established that it, that it was. Instead, it was a political one. Mm. Does it sound familiar? Sounds too familiar, Erin. Yeah. And despite the strong evidence that growth promoters also promoted antibiotic resistance and all of the terrifying implications that came along with it, the U.S. declined to ban tetracycline as a growth promoter. It, along with many other antibiotics, continued to be used freely for decades in livestock. You said for decades. Are you going to tell me some happy news at the end of this? Like, no longer or what? There are, there are some, some bright moments. Okay. Um, and there's some really cool little case studies that I won't go into, but I'll mention. And I'll mention places to read further about them because Denmark and Netherlands. Woo woo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and just because a country had stricter regulations doesn't mean that they weren't also contributing to the resistance problem. A lot of the time, there wasn't much regulatory oversight into just how much antibiotics were being sold to agriculture. Mm. And when there was sort of a retrospective look at the amount over time, like number of tons or millions of pounds sold over time there actually wasn't really a decrease after right. some of these bans were put into place because the labeling just changed for a lot of these things. Another issue was that these bans, like I mentioned, often limited use of antibiotics to those that weren't also used to treat animal or human infections. But this is also a problem. And that's because as resistance to the most common antibiotics grew, doctors had to reach increasingly to the back of that cabinet for the third and fourth string antibiotics that had been deemed too toxic or too specific or too expensive to be used. Mm -hmm. Vancomycin was one of these antibiotics. <laughs> so it kind of came, it was one of the earlier ones that had been discovered and developed, but it was deemed to be too expensive and had some nasty side effects. So people were like, no, nah, no, nah, we'll just use methicillin instead. <laughs> and so in the 1980s, it was dusted off and increasingly used to treat stubborn, resistant infections. And it seemed to be remarkably effective in that microbes weren't showing resistance towards it. So that was promising. And some researchers were like, okay, well, how exactly does it work? And they were like, it's so complex that it would be nearly impossible for a bacterium to develop all of the genetic changes needed to overcome this mechanism. Hmm. It's like an unsinkable ship. Like, why do we say these things? <laughs> <laughs> it's just tempting fate. 
1989, the first strains of vancomycin-resistant enterococci, VRE, started popping up in hospitals in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And by 1993, it was close to being endemic in many hospitals. Mm -hmm. VRE, baby. VRE, baby. It's really bad. Mm -hmm. Within five years of first showing up, VRE was widespread in the U.S., something that it took MRSA about methicillin-resistant Staph aureus about 15 years to do. So they were like, what the heck? This is super complex. So how could there have been enough time that has passed for these mutations to actually emerge? Like, what is going on here? What happened? Turns out the answer is in agriculture. Mm. A vancomycin-like antibiotic had been used as a growth promoter in livestock for decades. Oh, gosh. And so when physicians started to reach into the back of that cabinet for vancomycin, the resistance genes were already long present and quite prevalent. Mm. And then with that added selection pressure of being used in a clinical setting, it just spread like wildfire. And bad turned to worse when... In 1996, the first vancomycin-resistant Staph aureus, VRSA, infections, VRSA, infections emerged in Japan. At this point in time, about 50% of all hospital Staph aureus infections were methicillin-resistant, so treatable only by vancomycin. Within the next few years, VRSA was basically everywhere. And again... There was still lobbying for the continued use of vancomycin and other antibiotics as growth promoters in the U.S., and those lobbyists still refused to acknowledge how those practices could lead to resistance. So Robert Carnival, who is one of those lobbyists, is quoted as saying, I'm sure VRE can transfer from animals to people, and it might be resistant, but is it of clinical importance? <laughs> um, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. Oh, gosh. And it wasn't just vancomycin resistance that agriculture was promoting. Colistin was another one of those antibiotics that had been put aside in favor of more sensitive drugs in the past. And it had also been used in agriculture. And so resistance was already super high there. And it wasn't just resistance genes that spread from agricultural settings to hospitals or communities. People realized it was also the bugs themselves. Epidemics of XPEC which I can't remember what that one is, but it's some sort of E. coli, toxic E. coli. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These UTIs caused by XPEX, they seem to be coming from food, specifically chicken. Oh, gosh. Quinolone-resistant salmonella typhimurium strain DT-104. That's a bad one. That spread through fresh dairy and can kill you. And that came directly from animals. And quinolone-resistant campylobacter... Those, that was found in grocery store chicken. Oh, gosh. So quinolone had been used in agriculture for years, but the sharp, alarming rise of resistance to it prompted the FDA finally to propose a ban, propose a ban for their use in animals. But a proposal was just a proposal. Some drug companies, including Bayer, declared that it would not comply voluntarily. So it would fight the proposal and ask for a hearing where it could show that quinolone use in animals was of no harm to humans. I, I'm just getting too depressed, Aaron. I know. Okay, but in the late 1990s, is a little shining, son. <laughs> okay. Okay. The European Union moved to ban antibiotics as growth promoters, like all of them. Okay. 
But preventative use was still allowed, which still promoted resistance. Again, there didn't seem to be any decline in the amount of antibiotics sold for farm use. So from 1999 to 2006 and beyond, it stayed at 606 tons per year. This is after the ban, right? However, however, some countries did actually do it on their own. And some countries, like in Denmark, the industry did it on their own themselves. They were like, we're not going to... We're not going to list like they were just decided amongst the community (laughs) and the farmers that they were going to do this because they were like, what's right for, you know, social responsibility kind of a thing. Yeah. So the Netherlands, for example, they really doubled down and started policing the use of antibiotics much more. And the result was that antibiotic use on farms actually declined dramatically starting in 2013. And... Really cool, the occurrence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria found in meat also declined. Hmm. And similar things happened in Denmark as well. And all of the horrible repercussions that had been promised, like a drop-off in the weight of livestock, sky-high meat prices, more disease among livestock, like none of these things happened. Hmm. The weight dropped a bit, a little bit. But it had been recognized for quite a while that growth promoters were no longer achieving the same dramatic gains that had been seen when they were first used. Oh, no. So that's somewhere, interesting. That is very interesting. So somewhere in the five or six decades since antibiotics were first used in agriculture, they had lost their magical ability to promote growth. So a couple of different things. It's probably likely that when they were first used, the antibiotics were compensating for some of the negative ways that the farms were run. Mm -hmm. So like as hygiene and monitoring and nutrition and breeding had changed, it had eliminated that gap that growth-promoting antibiotics had made up. That makes sense. And it's also possible that if it was affecting the negative, the harmful gut bacteria or whatever gut bacteria, that resistance had emerged and so antibiotics (laughs) were literally just doing nothing doing less yeah yeah and by removing antibiotics from agriculture places like denmark and the netherlands incorporated animal welfare into the business model and with that they improved quality quality of life for the animals quality of meat for consumption Mm. quality of their investment etc but once again the u.s failed to make similar regulatory progress as europe Mm -hmm. in 2015 34.3 million pounds of antibiotics were sold for use in animals, compared to approximately 7.7 million pounds for humans. But even though the U.S. government agencies were slow to stop the overuse and misuse of antibiotics, some companies actually voluntarily stopped using growth promoters because they realized that antibiotics for growth promotion may not be worth the cost for human health or the cost of the constant legal battles. Mm. This industry shift paralleled many others that were going on in food supply arenas. So it was one after another, both from the, you know, meat providing side of things. So these big name chicken farms to the food supply aspect. So like fast food restaurants, stuff like that. They were all starting to offer antibiotic free meat options. And so in the market seemed to be responding positively to these changes. But that's all on the industry side. 
So even though starting in 2012, the U.S. has put in some regulations for monitoring the use of antibiotics in agriculture, for many years, the amount of antibiotics has actually increased rather than decreased. 2017 did see a decrease, but it doesn't seem 100% clear why that decrease happened. Maybe it's because of these bans, and that would be great. But Antibiotic resistance and its association with agriculture is a perfect example, again, of why a One Health approach is essential. Humans and animals share one bacterial and viral world and fungal world and protozoal and parasitic, whatever. So the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria on farms means a rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria everywhere. Mm-hmm. Just like with the medical side of things... There is such thing as proper use of antibiotics in agriculture, but there has been overuse in terms of growth promoters and in terms of preemptive treatment, and it has remained a debate and a a challenge to kind of see what the costs and benefits are. Mm -hmm. And I think we're only becoming more and more aware of the cost to humans. And it's also not going to just be antibiotic-resistant infections in humans. It's also going to be livestock as well. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing to think about anyway. But it's not just the U.S. where overuse is an issue. So in 2015, a group of researchers tried to predict how much antibiotics Brazil, Russia, India, and China could be predicted to use in the next 15 years as demand for meat continues to increase. If nothing changed, that estimate was 105,596 tons globally. Oh, dear. That's hard to wrap your brain around. The annual numbers of antibiotic-resistant infections and deaths due to those infections are absolutely staggering. The history of resistance is like actively still being written Mm -hmm. and it's not looking good. (laughs) I want to, I mean, there are some promising avenues of research ahead of us, Mm -hmm. um, but I want to end with a quote from the amazing book, Big Chicken by Maren McKenna. Antibiotic resistance is like climate change. It is an overwhelming threat created over decades by millions of individual decisions and reinforced by the actions of industries. It is also like climate change in that the industrialized West and the emerging economies of the global South are at odds. Well, with that, Erin, tell me where we stand with antibiotic resistance today. Are we basically on the brink of returning to a pre-antibiotic era? Is there any hope? I mean... Let's find out. I need a short break. (laughs) Yeah, same. start with the depressing things and then we'll end on a at least hopeful note. How about that? Great. Okay. <laughs> ah, all right. So medically, in the U.S. at least, 
The CDC estimates that at least 47 million antibiotic prescriptions in the U.S. each year currently are unnecessary. What? So we're doing great. (laughs) Okay, what does unnecessary mean? Means, I don't know for sure, because that was just a stat taken off their, like, antibiotic resistance general page. But in general, unnecessary means either not the right antibiotic for the infection or using an antibiotic to treat a non-bacterial infection, right? You wouldn't expect ever to see zero, right? Because if somebody comes in and they have, you know some infection, but you don't know what it is yet, Mm -hmm. or you suspect it's a bacterial infection, Mm -hmm. you're going to try different antibiotics, right? And so that would be included in that. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this 47 million number. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if that includes like every time that you give vancomycin in the ER, which like everyone who comes into the ER gets those two antibiotics at first, right? When we don't know what they have yet. Um, Right. So I don't know if that's included or if that's just prescriptions, like outpatient, what you get what you get sent home with. Either way, it's terrifying. I mean, 47 million. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> that's in the U.S. Uh, also in the U.S., it's estimated that more than – and this is very recent data. So this is from a report that came out at the end of 2019. It's estimated that there are more than 2.8 million antibiotic-resistant infections – in the U.S. every year, that result in more than 35,000 deaths. Wow. So 35,000 people a year are dying in the U.S. because of antibiotic-resistant infections. Do you have global numbers? Great question. I tried really hard to get solid global numbers. It is very, very difficult. So the World Health Organization has set up in, I believe, 2015, they set up the Global Antimicrobial Resistance Surveillance System, which Mm -hmm. is basically every country setting up their own surveillance system. So I think now it's over 60 countries that are reporting their antimicrobial resistance data to the World Health Organization. But they don't seem to aggregate that data and present it as overall numbers. Overall, World Health Organization estimates that in many parts of the world, over 40% of bacterial infections are with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. But I don't have numbers on deaths. I do have numbers in the EU. In 2015, an estimate from the European Union was that 671,000 infections were likely antibiotic resistant, and that likely uh, resulted in 33,000 deaths in 2015. Oh my gosh. So that's in the EU. But a lot of the increase in antibiotic use is in low and middle income countries, and we don't really have good data on the number of resistant infections worldwide. But it's bad. It's not good. It's a lot. So I have two questions. Okay. The first question is about in the U.S., are antibiotic-resistant infections reportable? Like, are you required to report them? Well, that's a really good question. I, I don't fully know the answer to that. So there's the CDC, that report that came out in 2019 has a list of like the most concerning pathogens, right? And the World Health Organization also has a list of what their pathogens of greatest concern are. And those lists mostly overlap. So I would think that most of those pathogens are going to be reportable in the U.S. 
Okay. But that doesn't mean, like, every time that, for example, someone comes in with a UTI, if you do a urine culture, you might send that culture off to see what the resistance profile is. And that bacteria might be resistant to a few antibiotics. So then we use that to choose what antibiotic we give to that person. But I don't think that we then report that necessarily to the CDC. It probably goes to the local public health district so that we can keep track of what the general antibiotic resistance looks like in our area. Gotcha. So hospitals keep track of things like that. Um, Okay. So I will say that a report that came out in 2014, which is earlier than most of the data I was hoping to find, estimated that currently worldwide, there are 700,000 deaths attributed to antimicrobial resistance worldwide. That is a lot. It's a lot. And they projected that out and estimated that by 2050, that number would go up to 10 million deaths. Oh my God. If if we do nothing, like if, if we, we just nothing. continue on the same pathway. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And then they also estimated what the overall cost, like the monetary cost of that would be, that it would cost the world up to $100 trillion, antimicrobial <laughs> resistance. Yep. I can't, I can't comprehend that number. But Me neither. Wow. Um, I was wow. really hoping to find more recent like hard data on yeah. antimicrobial resistance. And I came across a paper that came out in 2016 that really highlighted some of the issues that we have in even trying to get a handle on this burden of antibiotic resistance. Because that number, that estimated number of deaths, like it's such an estimate. We really don't have solid numbers on that. Well, and then I also, you know, my other question was was about how do you attribute cause of death? Exactly. And so that's, what, yeah. So like if you're in the hospital and you go in for like a routine surgery, like appendicitis and you get MRSA and then you die, is that MRSA, is that appendicitis? Right. It, exactly. That's kind of exactly what they were highlighting in this paper. We can't calculate the number that we really need to calculate to know the number of deaths attributable to the failure of antibiotic therapy due to antibiotic resistance because we don't know enough about the rates of resistance or the rates of infection for so many different infections. You have so many things like diarrhea that can be caused by so many different pathogens. So like, yeah, right. It's a really complicated, big picture question. Um, But there is no question that it is leading to death and is horrible. Yeah, it really is. And it's a very multifactorial problem. Like you mentioned, Erin, there's a number of different factors contributing to this, right? Inappropriate prescriptions, misuse, of taking those antibiotic prescriptions, agriculture, poor sanitation in hospitals. So I will say that all of the kind of action plans that CDC and WHO and all these different organizations, they're very holistic plans, right? They recognize that this is not going to be solved by just one change or even a few changes. It's a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of different solutions that are going to be required for this problem. Mm -hmm. But one thing that it's definitely going to take are new methods of treatment. 
because for many pathogens, resistance is already here. So we need new ways to target these pathogenic bacteria. And we do. And this is where we'll have some shining moments of hope, okay? Yay! (laughs) The good news is there are so many people working on the issue of antibiotic resistance from a treatment standpoint. You heard in our last antibiotics episode about a group that's working on new methods of identifying antibiotic compounds using machine learning, which is so cool. I love it so much. It's amazing. It's literally unbelievable. So cool. There are a number of other groups working on alternative therapy strategies as well. There's some really promising data on probiotic therapy, which I think is awesome. So basically boosting gut microbiomes to try and both treat and prevent toxic infections. Fecal transplants. Fecal transplants. So probiotic therapy is a very cool. I feel like we'll probably talk a lot more about that in a microbiome episode. But you should definitely Google fecal transplant. Oh, for sure. It's so cool. (laughs) There's also a lot of work being done on combination therapy. So whether Mm -hmm. that's combinations of an antibiotic and another molecule that blocks a normal resistance mechanism to that antibiotic, like Augmentin, that was an example I gave early on, or whether it's giving a number of different antibiotics in combination that have different mechanisms of action, which is how we already treat things like tuberculosis for example. Right. Which, by the way, I know we touched on this in in the tuberculosis episode, but like multi-drug or extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis is terrifying. Erin, tuberculosis is so terrifying that it's not even included on the lists of the terrifying bacteria because it's like its whole own version. Like we've known about resistance in TB for so long, like we don't even need to include it on our list. (laughs) Oh gosh. The uh, the escape list? Is that what you're talking about? Oh yeah. I didn't even mention the names of any of them, but (laughs) I got ahead of myself. (laughs) So some of those pathogens include Enterococcus faecium, Staph aureus, Klebsiella, Acinetobacter baumannii, Pseudomonas, and Enterobacter. Those are the six that are really commonly, like, the big escape, I think just because they make a nice acronym. But there's really at least 12 (laughs) that we need to be concerned about. (laughs) But we don't we don't care about the other six just because they don't make a good acronym. They don't make a good acronym. H. pylori, Blah. Campylobacter, Gonorrhea, Salmonella, Strepneumo. You know, there's a lot. Ooh, there aren't enough vowels in there. I know. That's why they're not included. <laughs> <laughs> we we do care about all of those. Oh, especially <laughs> Gonorrhea, man. Oof. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So there's a lot. Um, There's also a lot of work being done on antimicrobial peptides. There's work being done on stimulating the immune response and using our own immune system to better fight off infection. There's the use of things like iron scavenging molecules. One of the coolest areas, and one that I've been most excited to talk about for a while now, is phage therapy. Phage therapy. We briefly touched on it in the MRSA episode. Very briefly. Very briefly. Too briefly. Far too briefly. And so who better to tell you about the status of phage therapy research than the provider of our firsthand account who literally treated her own husband with phage therapy and also studies it, Dr. Stephanie Strathdee. 
Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. We're really excited about this episode and thrilled to get the chance to talk to you. We'd love for you to kind of give us first maybe a brief overview of like what phage therapy is for our listeners and kind of how it works. Sure. Well, phages are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. They're like the perfect predator for bacteria. They've actually co-evolved for 4 billion years. They're the oldest and most ubiquitous organism on the planet. And it's thought that there's about 10 million trillion trillion. That's 10 to the power of 31 for you uh, numeric mathy people out there. And so they're everywhere. They're on our skin. They're in our guts. We poop them out. They're in water. You know, a a single drop of water can have trillions of phages in it. We just haven't been able to understand what what they're like because they're so small. They're about a hundred times smaller than bacteria. And um, they were discovered in 19... 17 by a French Canadian named Félix de Harel. And, you know, he deduced that these must be viruses that are parasites of bacteria, even though you couldn't see them until the electron microscope was developed in the early 1940s. And people actually had a big debate as to whether or not these were proteins or whether they were viruses or whatever. And um, de Harel himself was quite a a character. He was very egotistical. He wasn't formally trained. And he was um, really pushed to the margins of society um, and, and the medical field. And, um, and then when he helped the former Soviet Union develop the first phage therapy center in the world, it got the label as, you know, Soviet science. And this was around World War II. And of course, that led to a big geopolitical bias of like pinko commie science. And that um, uh, put a cloud over phage therapy for decades. And so that's one of the reasons why the West really abandoned it. And of course, penicillin came on the scene um, in 1942, even though it was... um, discovered in 1928 it it had been you know it took some time to come to into the field and and that was because it was needed on the war front and so people thought antibiotics are wonder drugs and of course they were for a while but antimicrobial resistance has just continued to outpace us and, and nobody's really been paying attention to that until you know we get these people who are having you know minor scrapes or surgeries and we realize oh my gosh they got a superbug and there's nothing left to kill it anymore. Could you talk us through what a typical course of phage therapy might look like? So how do you even go about finding the right phages and then administering them? Well, the thing about phages that's both a blessing and a curse is that they're really finicky. They only match to specific bacteria. So for an organism like Staphylococcus, um, which, you know, um, one of the strains is, is MRSA, right? Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, that's the superbug that was discovered first. Maybe about 20 to 30 phages will cover the majority of circulating strains around the world. Um, and that's pretty good because you don't need that many of them. And maybe you could have a, like a cocktail of phages that would, you know, cover the majority of those infections. But for superbugs like Tom's, Acinetobacter bomanii, it's very, very specific. So the phage um, not does, doesn't just ma- have to match the genus and the species. It, have to, it has to match the isolate. So Tom's bacteria. So that means you have to like essentially look for a needle in a haystack. But it's a little worse than that because when you think about where oh, there's a lot of bacteria, that's where you're going to find a lot of phages. 
So if you need to go on a phage hunt, you have to go to some of the worst places around. And we're talking like sewage, barnyard waste, scummy ponds, that kind of thing. So the phages that were actually used to treat Tom were from <laughs> So I can say literally that my husband is full of <laughs> I mean, who could, who could get to say that to their husband? <laughs> That's amazing. And then so what then once you if you go in and you you dig through all that sewage and you get lucky enough and you find that needle in the massive massive haystack, do you then take that to the lab, culture it, and then what's the next step after that? How do you actually get it into that person? Well, the the old-fashioned plaque assay, and, and it's actually, this is something that high school and, and um, freshmen learn how to do. Um, you, you have a, a Petri dish, say, with your bacterial um, lawn um, or your bacteria streaked on it. And if you want to see that you, if you have phages that are matching to that bacteria, you put a drop of sewage on the Petri dish and you incubate it for 24 to 48 hours. And if it comes back looking like a little like Swiss cheese, because there's holes in, literally in the Petri dish, you get really excited because even though you can't see the phage because they're smaller than the naked eye and even smaller than the light microscope can detect, you know that they've been at work because they've gobbled up a bacterial colony there. So then you can pluck it out and add it to more bacterial suspension, and then you need to purify it. And that's the tricky part. Um, there's different techniques to purify phage suspension, um, but if you're going to treat with phage intravenously, you want to get it as pure as possible because if there's a lot of bacterial debris in the suspension, it could elicit septic shock in the patient and could kill them. And that's what we were worried about with Tom's situation. And nobody really knew what the threshold for safety was. So we were taking a big risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of how difficult it is to even be able to identify and find these phages, especially when you're dealing with bacteria where you maybe only have like have to find a very specific phage. So could you talk maybe a little more broadly about some of the pros and cons of using phage therapy, maybe in like comparing and contrasting that to antibiotics that we have currently? Yeah, well, the, the good news about phages is that, again, there's 10 million trillion trillion phages on the planet, so there's almost an inexhaustible supply of them. It's just you need to find the right phages to match the bacteria that you want to kill. So if you have to go back to sewage or, you know, barnyard waste or whatever, every single time you need to treat somebody, that would be a real pain. And obviously it's very labor intensive and you may not find phages in time. And we've been in that situation with other patients. But if you have a phage library or a phage bank, it's essentially like a walking in cooler where you have thousands of phages and they're already identified and characterized and sequenced. Then you can just kind of go in there and, and, and you know, see if the bacteria that you want to kill has phages in the library. So that, that's that problem about how do you find the phages to match the bacteria that you want to kill can be overcome. Gotcha. So one of the questions I had was about dose and sort of one of the, the negative consequences of or potential consequences of phages. So like, how do you know how much, how many phages to give? And also when those phages break apart those bacterial cells, what are some of the risks associated with that? 
Well, to be honest, nobody really knows the right dose for phages um, in most cases. Um, and that's part of the translational basic science research that needs to go on so that we can, you know, get ready for clinical trials. In Tom's case, we just, um, you know, took an estimate based on his weight and the fact that he had a systemic infection where you know, the, the bacteria were in every cavity in his body. And we knew that if you underdose, if you give too few phages, the body's own immune system can eliminate them and the phages might not ever reach their target. And we thought, well, is there a risk of overdosing him or whoever you're treating? And we talked to experts and they said, you know, we haven't actually, you know, seen any side effects of, of this as long as the endotoxin, which is essentially the bacterial debris that is um, caused when you are growing up a lot of phage um, in the context of a lot of bacteria, that endotoxin, if that, there's a lot of endotoxin left, that could kill the person. So... Again, we haven't seen that though. We've treated um, over a dozen patients um, and at UC San Diego and dozens other internationally. Gotcha. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about some of these challenges moving forward with phage therapy, um, but let's talk about the bright future. So since the publication of your book, there's been a lot of forward progress in phage therapy and in new initiatives. And so can you talk a little bit about what you see as the future for phage therapy? And also, are there going to be genetically engineered phages for specific yes. infections? <laughs> Well, yes, there's been a lot of really exciting developments since then. Um, the first is that um, the first genetically modified phage cocktail to be used um, successfully to treat a human uh, bacterial infection was published in May of 2019, so a, a year ago from now. And it was an incredible case, just as fantastic as Tom's. Um, this is a young girl. Her name's Isabel. Um, I happen to know her now through our connections in Facebook and social media. She had uh, has cystic fibrosis, and she'd had a double lung transplant and um, had acquired this, what's called mycobacterium obsessus. And people who are familiar with tuberculosis will know that mycobacterium tuberculosis, a cousin to this mycobacterium obsessus, is the, the biggest bacterial killer in the world. It almost kills two million people per year. And so um, this is a very um, difficult to treat pathogen. And she was literally dying. She was in hospice and her mother heard about Tom's case, contacted her doctor. The doctor contacted um, some of our colleagues. And um, we happened to know that there was a fellow named Graham Hatful at the University of Pittsburgh who runs this wonderful training program called C-Phages that teaches students how to find phages. And essentially they're doing this phage hunt um, that I described earlier. And all of the phages that they find go into a giant phage bank. And they have about 15,000 mycobacterium phages. They'd never even dreamed that they could be used therapeutically. And um, when asked, they said, wow, we'll certainly see if any of our phages will be a match for Isabel's bacteria. 
And um, three of them were, and one was perfect. Its name was Muddy. Um, it was found on a rotting eggplant from South Africa by a student there. <laughs> and <laughs> all the students who find new phages get to name them, right? That's, that's part of the bonus. Um, and two of the other phages were the sleepy kind. In our book, I describe them as, you know, hitting the snooze button. They actually don't kill the bacterial cell. But that's all they could find. So what they did was they genetically manipulated those two phages by clipping out the repressor gene in a technique called recombinating, which is, um, you know, a, a prequel to a CRISPR gene editing. And um, it forced those sleepy phages to become the phage rage kind of phages that actually kill the bacterial cell. And then they had to convince the UK government where um, she was living um, in the UK that, that this was okay to use. And luckily they went along with it because they said, well, it's not a GMO because you took away a gene, you didn't add a gene. And um, Isabel um, received um, phage therapy intravenously because based on Trom's protocol, we convinced them that it was safe. She left the hospital within a week. It, it was just stunning. And she's made um, a, a great recovery. Um, she's, I believe she's still receiving phage therapy now. Um, but she's, you know, working. She's finished her A-level exam. She's learned to drive a car. Um, you know, she's dyed her hair purple. Um, <laughs> you know, she's like... Um, I believe she's 18 now and she's doing great. So that case um, is a landmark because that's the first time that um, genetically engineered phage has been used to treat um, a bacterial infection in a human being successfully. And also it's the first time that a mycobacterium infection in a human has been successfully treated with phage therapy. And it lends hope that maybe someday we could treat tuberculosis with phage therapy. Wouldn't that be awesome? That is oh, so exciting. Wow. That is amazing. I mean, and it seems like it's coming at just like a highly, highly needed time. I and mean, we need to do something about this, you know, huge, huge and continuing to grow problem of antibiotic resistance. And so, you know, how, how have you felt the receptivity of phage therapy in, you know, academic circles, for instance? Do you feel like it's people are being fairly receptive or is there still some pushback? Well, initially, when Tom's case was started to become publicized, about a year after he um, was treated, it was presented at the 100th anniversary of the discovery of bacteriophages at the Pasteur Institute. And then the story went viral. I mean, literally, I was getting contacted by people from all over the world wanting phage therapy. And it was, but it was mostly patients and their families. Doctors were very skeptical. And until um, Chip schoolies started making presentations to infectious disease physicians, that's when they started to realize, wow, this isn't just a one of, there's several other cases and it's looking really exciting and they're very well documented and Tom's case is published and several other cases have been published. Now, of course, the Georgians and the Poles have been doing this phage therapy for years now and um, there's also interest in their work and they have uh, extraordinary clinical experience, but it had been really kind of poo-pooed because it was thought of as, as Soviet science. And so it's, it's really been a watershed moment um, for reasons that, you know, I don't completely understand, but the story itself has kind of led to a lot more interest in phage therapy. Uh, pharmas and biotechs have started to get into the space because they realize too that with genetically engineered or even synthetic phages, they'll be easier to patent. 
The NIH, which had traditionally not funded any phage therapy, um, they've funded now two clinical trials of phage therapy. The first is going to be undertaken by our center, IPATH, in collaboration with the Antibiotic Resistance Leadership Group, a network of research institutions around the U.S. that had predominantly focused on new antibiotics, but since there's no antibiotics in the pipeline to speak of, they've embraced phage therapy. So we're very excited by that because that's what we need now. We need clinical trials to advance phage therapy and to uh, first show um, efficacy, and then uh, we can, you know, hope that the FDA will license it alongside antibiotics. We don't think that phage is ever going to replace antibiotics altogether, but it will be an important adjunct, and it will allow us to reduce the amount of antibiotics that, that we're using. We've even seen that phage can be synergistic with antibiotics. We saw that in Tom's case and in several other cases. So if we can leverage the power of phage, we'll be using antibiotics more wisely. I'm just happy that our story can kind of take a, a rightful place in medical history. I mean, Tom and I are really privileged. I mean, we if we had um, been living anywhere else or if I didn't have the connections that I did um, and wonderful colleagues at, at our university hospital, you know, I'd be holding, you know, an urn with its ashes instead of his hands. So that was one of the reasons we decided to tell our story because we realized how privileged we are and that most people dying from superbugs are in lower and middle income countries and they don't have the resources we have. So my dream someday is to have an open source phage bank that can be accessible to anyone, anywhere. And I'm fundraising for that through IPATH. That's our Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics. And hopefully one of these days we'll be able to, you know, say goodbye to superbugs. That was amazing. We were so excited to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat phages. So cool, so cool, the so coolest, cool. The coolest, the coolest. Erin, do we have anything else or is it time for sources? This was such a fun episode. Let's cover sources. Let's do it. I think I might have mentioned a couple of times the book Big Chicken. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> Just a few by Marin McKenna. It's great. It's about the use of antibiotics in agriculture, particularly the chicken industry. Mm -hmm. And I also read a few papers that I will put on the website. But another book that I read is called The Killers Within, The Deadly Rise of Drug-Resistant Bacteria by M.B. Schneerson and M.J. Plotkin. And finally, you guys should definitely check out Dr. Strathdee's book, called The Perfect Predator, A Scientist's Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug, a memoir. So good, you guys. So Seriously. Good. So good. I heavily used actually the same book that I used for the antibiotics episode, edited by Rosalind Anderson et al., called Antibacterial Agents, Chemistry, Mode of Action, Mechanisms of Resistance, and Clinical Applications. And then there's another great paper from 2016 called Mechanisms of Antibiotic Resistance that I will link to, plus a whole bunch of papers on the kind of current status of antibiotic resistance. And we'll link to all of our sources from this episode and every episode on our website. 
Yes. Thank you again so much to Dr. Strathdee for coming on and chatting with us and telling her story. We really appreciate it. So, so much. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. And thank you to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes. Yes. And thank you to you, listeners, for listening. 51 episodes long. 51 episodes. Now we can continue our excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, until next time, wash your hands. You filthy animals.